thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with a slightly hoarse Chris Smith. And also here is Katani. Hi, Kat. Hello. Now this week, how scientists in New Zealand have discovered a cow that naturally produces diet-friendly low-fat milk. Also how humans first found their feet. And why does sucking a mint make your breath feel cold? Well, now scientists know the answer, and it's coming up shortly. Also this week, we're going to be exploring the world of animal behaviour to ask, do animals think like we do? Well, I can tell you for a fact, my dog can't do the telegraph crossword. We have Nick- But neither can you. Shh. Anyway, we have Professor Nikki Clayton here, who's going to be explaining how members of the crow family can perform extraordinary feats of intelligence, including making tools, planning for a rainy day, and even using cigarettes to rid themselves of parasites. We'll also be catching up the world's most sociable mammals, those lovely meerkats that live in the Kalahari Desert. I actually used to play in a band called Kingdom of Meerkats. It was brilliant. And uh, we have uh, Andrew Smith, who's going to be explaining how monkeys can always spot a ripe and juicy piece of fruit. And we have Kitchen Science this week. We'll be showing you a really, really cool experiment with some rice. So what you need is a mug, a sharp knife and some rice. And that's it. We'll be telling you how to do it shortly. So we really do need your science questions about animal behaviour for Nikki and Andrew. They're here with us in the studio. We'll give you the contact details shortly. But first, here's this week's teaser question. You can win yourself a signed copy of our book, That's Naked Science. It comes guaranteed to brighten up even the, uh, the dullest dinner party. <laughs> so what uh, your dinner parties are like. <laughs> so if you want to win a copy, can you tell us what's the fastest that information can travel along the nerves in our bodies? We want answers in miles an hour, please. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, Kat, really interesting thing to kick off with this week, which is, have you ever noticed that when you suck on a mint and then you take a deep breath, and I know all about this because I've been sucking one or two cough lozenge type things this week, your mouth feels very, very cold. Have you noticed that? Mm, yeah, I love mints. But why does that happen? Uh, it's something to do with menthol. Yeah, it is. And for a long time, scientists have suspected that menthol was something to do with this, but they didn't exactly know how. And this week, there's a paper in the journal Nature by a researcher from the University of California, San Francisco, called David Julius, and they've discovered the reason why this happens. And it's all down to what's called an iron channel, TRIP-M8, that's the name of it. This is on the surface of a, f- a very special family of nerve fibres called cold-sensitive nerve fibres. And when these nerve fibres are exposed to low temperatures, this TRIP-M8, which is little protein changes shape and it changes the activity or the excitability of the nerve fibers and it makes them become much more excitable than they were before and so that's how you detect when the temperature is falling and what they did was to remove this gene from mice and they found that the mice who lacked this gene were quite happy sitting on a cold surface or a warm surface when they gave them a choice and normally if you give mice a choice between a warm surface and a cold surface then they will always choose the warm one because little animals lose heat very very quickly and what's this got to do with mints did they feed the mints well metaphorically they did because you can stimulate this pore with menthol 
menthol, the same, the same thing as cold temperature and menthol. They both work the same way. So what the menthol is doing is it makes this shape change in the protein happen automatically with the menthol without any reduction in temperature. So it fools your mouth into thinking it's colder than it really is. And so that's when you, when you see this cold breath phenomenon. When you're taking in a breath of air, the, the nerves are firing off faster than they would do normally. But that, that makes you think your mouth's colder than it really is. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I wonder if I want to see what happens if they give mice like chewing gum or something. Anyway, have you ever wondered why humans walk on two legs while pretty much all animals prefer four? Now, most human evolution researchers think we started to walk upright through a process that kind of began with knuckle walking on land, and that's the way that chimps and gorillas walk now. And don't actually, judge everyone by your own family, yeah. cat. And some of the naked scientists team, I think. Hello, Ben. And uh, <laughs> but this change from uh, dragging your knuckles to walking was thought to have happened when our ancestors left the forests of East Africa and moved onto the grasslands. But now some researchers at the University of Liverpool have come up with some evidence to suggest that we actually learnt to walk upright by foraging in the trees for food. Now, what they've been doing is studying um, orangutans in Sumatra. And it led them to the conclusion that this knuckle walking is actually quite recent development for chimps. And the ancestors of the great apes actually spent a lot more time on two legs in trees, kind of swinging on the branches for support. So humans may have never gone through this knuckle dragging stage and just went from straight to the, you know, two feet in a tree to two feet on a ground. But we must have evolved somehow because you, you can't be adapted to one type of movement and then suddenly learn to, to change that overnight. There must have been some kind of intermediate. Well, they think that um, being more upright in the trees for certain, you know, groups of our ancestors that actually induce changes in their skeleton because we have different skeletons from chimps, which means that we can walk upright. So, I don't know, it's going back a long way, uh, but uh, interesting what you can interpolate from orangutans. Hmm. It's interesting that m- members of the band Oasis are nonetheless uh, <laughs> still still lodged back in their evolutionary origins. Now, uh, you, you said to me, Kat, you refused one of my wife's delicious cakes that she's made today on the grounds that you're dieting or something. Well, I've I've given up, I've given up eating cakes for some reason. So, are you on the skimmed milk then as well? Yes. Okay, because th- this might be interesting to you because there's a cow which has been flushed out from New Zealand. It's actually been published this week by Via Lactea, which is a company, biotech company in New Zealand, and they found this cow which they've christened Marge uh, <laughs> in 2001. And Marge naturally makes milk which is skimmed; it's very low fat. And the, the reason they called it Marge, the cow that is, is because when you make butter from Marge's milk, it spreads easily straight from the fridge, even at low temperatures. And the reason is because the, the milk contains very little saturated fat; it's only got one percent fat in it compared with three and a half percent fat that you'd normally find in milk and the 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 milk's also good from the point of view that it's very rich in omega-3 fatty acids which we know are important for color vision and possibly cognition there there's a number of anecdotal studies if you give this to young people you can boost their reading power and brain power people who eat um, a lot of cod liver oil and oily fish seem to have better preserved intellect into old age possibly but anyway what's really interesting is that it's not just an isolated one-off cow because the the genetic trait although they haven't tracked it down it's it's dominant which means that all the calves that they've managed to breed from this cow also have the same trait. And so there's a guy called Russell Snell, who's the scientific advisor to this company, has said that by 2011 they're going to have a whole herd of these low-fat cows which they'll be able to milk and you'll have literally skim, low-fat, healthy milk direct from the udder. Oh, brilliant. I wish they'd make low-fat cheese. Low-fat chocolate would be probably <laughs> yeah. more of a breakthrough, I think. <laughs> that definitely would. Anyway.
Anyway, uh, on to other vices. We've known for quite a long time that tobacco smoking can cause a range of cancers. And in fact, it's believed to be responsible for more than a quarter of all cancer deaths in the UK. And there's also plenty of evidence to show that pregnant women who smoke can actually harm their unborn babies. But now scientists in Canada have discovered that fathers who smoke could actually be passing on genetic damage to their kids. And uh, the team did this by studying male mice who'd been exposed to cigarette smoke. And they found they had changes in the DNA within their sperm. And uh, if you sort of take this on to humans, such changes could mean that you could increase the risk of cancer or other diseases in your children. Now, what they did was they tested mice who'd been exposed to, to the relative levels of smoke that the average human smoker would be. And they looked at the DNA sequence of a certain stretch in the mouse genome and they found that the rates of DNA mistakes or mutations was about one, one and a half times higher after six weeks of exposure and 1.7 times higher after 12 weeks of exposure compared so to what's the bottom line then, smoking animals. Don't, don't smoke if you're trying to get pregnant. That's basically it. Now, you know, some men think, well, I'll stop smoking when the baby's born, you know, and, and not to expose children to the harmful effects of cigarette smoke. But in fact, because sperm renews itself quite a lot, you know, men are quite good at making a lot of sperm. It's 5,000 sperm a second is the, is the published figure. <laughs> It makes your eyes water. Um, because it's being renewed so frequently, it's probably best if you're trying to conceive, you know, if you're a, uh, someone who wants to become a dad, it's probably a good idea to quit smoking before you actually get down to it. Same advice. Uh, just to finish off, there's a very interesting little thing I, I spotted this week in the, the journal PNAS, and it caught my eye because it turns out that moths are probably a bit more intelligent than we give them credit for. There's a group of moths which are called tiger moths, and they taste nasty. They taste ghastly, but bats quite like to eat them, but they don't like the aftertaste. And so what bats do to hunt, as most people know, is they send out these pings of sonar, ultrasound waves that bounce back off the moth, and they tell the bat very, very quickly where to hunt, where the moth is. And these clever moths have learned to send their own ultrasonic clicks back at the bat, warning the bat, I don't taste very good, ignore me. And they've got these two structures called timbals that they vibrate to make them. And uh, other moths that are very similar but don't taste bad have learned this trick and they're imitating it. And so you've got other moths of similar size and stature but don't have this kind of re chemical repellent that these moths do. They're imitating the sound, so bats ignore them too. And uh, Jesse Barber, who's from Wake Forest University, who did the study, uh, then said, well, what happens if you've got moths that are the same sort of size but they don't make these noises? Well, the, the, those exercises and the right to remain silent get gobbled up pretty quick. So it's pretty clever that these moths have learned to imitate not only each other but also bats. I'm waiting for bats to develop some kind of after-dinner mint, an after-moth after mint to take away the taste. Ugh. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. We have had an email here from Adam Newell, and he says, Hey, Dr. Chris and the team. Um, he says he loves the show, and he's listening to the podcast from Fredericton in New Brunswick in Canada. And he has a question about our eyes. Now, I used to do this loads when I was a kid. Why is it when you push your fingers into your eyes and hold them there for a bit, or you squeeze your eyes really tight, you see these strange, swirly geometric patterns? Yes, they're usually purple. What colour yeah. are yours? Um, and they're blue. And um, yeah. what is this, and where does it come from? Okay, it's, it's called an endoptic phenomenon, and the eye, it surprises most people to know, has the highest metabolic rate, pretty much, of any tissue in the body, higher even than most brain tissue, and that's because the retina is incredibly energy-hungry. When it's shining, when light shines into your eye, it actually turns off retinal activity, so in the dark, your eye is more active than it is in the light. So it's very, very energy-hungry, and it's why when you stand up from a hot bath, you get a momentary dip in blood pressure. You get those funny lights in front of your eye because the blood that's running through the back of the eye to nourish the retina 
temporarily just drops in flow a little bit, and this reduces the amount of oxygen and sugar that the retina's picking up. Now, if you press on your eyeball, because the retina is full of fluid and jelly, sorry, the eye is full of fluid and jelly, when you press on it, the pressure gets transferred straight to the back of the eye, and this squashes the blood vessels a little tiny bit and changes the pressure in there. And that's one thing. So this reduces perfusion. It stops blood flowing in so easily. And secondly, also the physical distortion onto the retina itself can cause some of the photoreceptors to change their shape a bit and they become a bit more active, a bit less active, and they fire off impulses that they shouldn't. And this causes these internally generated endoptic phenomena. So it's the cells at the back of your retina going a bit crazy. And I have to ask you, Chris, you're wearing a rather spectacular tie. It's good, isn't it? It's got sort of molecules and a, a helix on it. Why? Why? Um, I'm wearing this in honour of someone who uh, is called uh, Larry, and he was listening to the Naked Scientist podcast. He's normally from California. He's decided to have a year off and come to the UK and spend a year here. Poor guy. The weather's terrible. It's and nice he's come over go. with his family to the UK. And um, he's actually spending his time in London at Imperial, but he came up to Cambridge uh, last Monday, on Bank Holiday Monday, and um, met up with me. And he's brought me a tie as a present. He said he's been listening to the Naked Scientist podcast. He's obviously a bit, a bit of a careful listener because he managed to remember we'd talked about my wife's tongue in the past, which... Um, She's got a very long tongue, my wife. Anyway, uh, thank you, Larry, for the tie. It's wonderful. I thought I'd wear it today it in your honour. Kat, I've got a question here for you from John Perslow, who's uh, somewhere in the UK listening to the podcast. He says, in recent weeks, loud sounds from animal world, it says, are, of course, by whales, I've heard. But which species? Is it the humpback or the blue whale? How loud are these sounds that whales make? Well, the answer is it's the blue whale is the loudest animal in the world, and it makes a sound that's about top range 188 decibels now to put this for comparison a jet engine is about 140 decibels and the human pain threshold is about 120 um humpback whales they don't make such quite loud sounds but they're more like the mariah carey of the whale world and they have really ouch they have really complex whale songs you know with a really wide frequency range so you know so they sort of warble on endlessly at very high frequencies they do though. and do soundtracks to really awful disney films um but <laughs> in fact uh, he also says, you know, is is this? Do we measure whales underwater or in air? And it's it's measured underwater. They create 188 decibels underwater, which would be painful to humans. So, what is the pain threshold? Must be what 130. Yeah, it's about 120, 130. Um, but you know, it's not actually painful to other animals that live in the sea. How does that compare with the jet taking off at Heathrow? As I said, it's about 140 decibels is a jet. Um, it's a pretty but yeah, loud. sea animals don't have the same ears that we do, so. They don't notice. They can tolerate it. Big hello to Diane Sastu, who's in Trinidad, West Indies. She actually listens to us on our podcast. She said, I recently purchased my first iPod. I filled it with your podcast. It's full of a lot of thought-provoking and interesting tidbits, which I use when I'm teaching my integrated science four- and five-year classes. The format and the show's presenters really do make science applicable and entertaining. So, well, thank you very much, Diane. Oh, we've got a, an email here from Mike in Hong Kong. He says he found our website in a newspaper in Hong Kong and he's happy that he found it because he likes science very much and he's also learning English from the Naked Scientists. So, hi to you, Mike. Thank you very much, Mike. Now, last week we had a show all about space and the planets. We've got this email from David Miles and he's asking how would sound or how, how well sound would travel on Mars if someone stood on Mars and shouted to their friend a short distance away, would you actually be able to hear them? Well, our friends over in America for this week's science update, Bob and Chelsea, I've got the answer, conveniently enough. Hey, Naked Scientists. We here at Science Update were inspired by your last show to talk about planets this week. I'm going to tell you how scientists are using diamonds and lasers to simulate the intense pressures inside large planets. But first, Chelsea has this for us from the Acoustical Society of America meeting that just finished up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Do you recognize this, Bob? 
Sure, it's the opening riff from Smoke on the Water. Yeah, and haven't you wondered what it would sound like on Mars? Yeah, in fact, I wonder that on a daily basis. Well, you have something in common with physicist Andy Petkulescu of the University of Louisiana, Lafayette. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. He's come up with a new way of simulating sound on different planetary bodies. Here's Venus. It's chock full of carbon dioxide, which steals energy from the Rift's high-frequency tones. Here's Saturn's moon Titan. Titan's atmosphere is a lot like Earth's, but it's colder and under more pressure, so the sound travels farther and the music sounds louder. But what about Mars? Mars would sound like, like this. So basically, no sound. It's very absorptive. Making it not such a great place for the next interplanetary rock festival. Yeah, I guess not. Thanks, Chelsea. Well, pairing gem-quality diamonds with lasers sounds like fashion design, but it's actually a new scientific technique for simulating high-pressure environments. Geophysicist Raymond jean of the University of California, Berkeley, says you first compress a small amount of the material you're studying between two diamonds. Then you send shockwaves through the material using powerful new lasers. With these very high-powered lasers, it's possible to get to very, very high pressures that previously were effectively accessible uh, next, only next to nuclear explosions. At these high pressures, chemicals behave completely differently. For instance, water becomes metallic. John Lowe says that outside of labs, these conditions would be found at the cores of supergiant planets beyond our solar system. Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll be back to tell you how television watching and moving in with a partner can affect your weight. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Well, thank you very much, Bob and Chelsea. You can hear more from them next week at scienceupdate.com. And we want to know on our teaser this week, if you're listening, what is the fastest that information can travel along the nerves in our bodies? We want the answers in miles per hour. A uh, thousand, one mile an hour, what do you reckon? Get calling in now. And up for grabs is a copy of my book, Naked Science, full of fun and funky science stories like you hear here on The Naked Scientist, guaranteed, we reckon, to brighten up even the dullest dinner party, like the kind of thing you get around Cat's house. Uh, don't forget, Waiting in the Wings, Andrew Smith and Nikki Clayton are going to talk to us about the way animals behave and think, and do they think like we do? Andrew's going to talk about monkeys and how they can always pick out the best and choicest, ripest fruit, and Nikki's going to talk about uh, her work on birds and how they can learn one or two things that they might even be able to teach us, I reckon. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. And now it's time for Kitchen Science. This one is absolutely fantastic, I have to tell you. I hope you're all waiting at home with your mug, your knife and some rice. Now, last week, Ben and Dave were microwaving bread to measure the speed of light. But this time it's even cooler. They're in Chelmsford with a bag of basmati rice. Hello, welcome to Kitchen Science. I'm in King Edward VI Grammar School today in Chelmsford and I'm here with David. Hi. And I'm also here with Stephen. Hello. And, of course, I'm here with Dave Hansel. Hi there. Today we're going to be looking at what Dave's called jammy rice. Now, I can see that he's got a bowl full of basmati rice, he's got a big sharp knife, which obviously you must be careful with, but he's also got an empty jam jar. Now, Dave, what on earth are we doing with these? Okay, first of all, you want to fill the jar right up with basmati rice. So, Stephen, if you'd like to do that, you might want a piece of paper to act as a funnel. Dave's now going to roll up a a piece of paper to act as a funnel, and Stephen here is going to pour all the basmati rice into the jar. Possibly not quite all of it, otherwise we'll make a horrible mess. It's probably plenty. How much rice do we actually need in the jar, Dave? How full should it be? The jar should be as full as you can get it. So now, Davik, if you'd like to take the knife, put it into the jar of rice, 
I just want you to put it all the way down and just wobble it gently. So, David, what, what does that feel like, putting the knife in the, in the jar? Is it easy to go in? Um, yeah, it's very easy to go in. You can kind of feel the teeny vibrations of the rice, and then it's kind of like, it feels cool. <laughs> well, I can see from here that the knife went in really easily, David. Is that what we should expect? Yeah, that's what you'd expect. It's just rice, isn't it? Okay, so now what we want you to do is just wobble that knife and keep wobbling it. Okay, David's wobbling the, the, the knife back and forth. We can see the rice sort of shifting around it. Do you notice anything happening to the rice, the level of the rice in the jar, David? Um, it's, is it going down? Yeah, the level might go down a bit. So what you want to do is slowly top it up with a little bit more rice, keep it at the top and keep wobbling. And then every now and again, I want you to take the knife out and push it right to the bottom and then try and take it out again. Keep going for about four or five minutes and see if anything weird happens. So if you want to try this at home, fill a jar to the top with basmati rice, push a knife in there and wibble it back and forward. Keep topping the rice up so it gets filled up. This is probably going to take you five minutes or so before you see anything happen. Let us know what you think will happen. We'll let you know what happened with our jar later on in the show. So if you reckon you know what's going to happen, I want to see everyone out there in Radio Land. You won't be able to see them. Or I hear them. <laughs> everyone out there with mugs, rice and knives, sticking the knife in the jar, wiggling it around, turn the knife through 90 degrees, push it back in, let us know what happens. And we've got it, it a, really is awesome. a fantastic book up for grabs for the first caller in with the right answer and an explanation of why it's happened. It's a very student-friendly experiment, this, because all students survive on diet of rice or pasta. So, well, I've uh, done pot noodle. Oh, you might work with a pot noodle. I don't know. There's lots of other bits of shrapnel in there which might throw a spanner in the works. But if you reckon you know what happens or you've had a go, you've done it, you've got the solution, you want to ask any questions about animals or animal behaviour or you want to have a go at our teaser, how fast, what's the fastest speed that information can travel in our nervous system, the human nervous system, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And we've had one answer in on, on the teaser so far. Um, Fred and Scott doing pretty well along the right lines there. They're going in the hat, I think. We want to know, yes, how fast in miles per hour can information travel down the nerves in our bodies? Now, I'm very pleased to, to welcome to the show this week Nikki Clayton from Cambridge University. Nikki, you work on scrub jays, and I understand they're a kind of bird, but perhaps you could kick off by telling us you know, what actually is a scrub jay and why do you want to work on it? Well, I work on a number of birds. They're all members of the crow family, which includes the ravens and magpies and jays. And the ones I work on are jays, rooks and jackdaws. But, but why do you want to study these birds? I mean, obviously it's important to study all kinds of species, but why are you particularly interested in this family of animals? Well, these birds are particularly clever. We think of them as the feathered Einsteins, if you like, or the um, feathered apes of the bird world. They're the really clever ones. They have huge brains for their body size, and there are all kinds of examples of just how clever they are. One of the things that you did recently was to see how good they were at planning for a rainy day. So tell us about that. Ah, well, these birds hide food for the future. And we call it caching behaviour simply from the French to hide. And what we were interested in was the extent to which they could actually plan because obviously many animals, um, squirrels hide food for the future, all kinds of animals hibernate or migrate. So many animals have forward-looking behaviour, but 
there's a difference between just having a simple forward-looking behaviour that might be triggered by a seasonal cue or be entirely inborn and actual planning which requires some kind of thinking or forethought. So how do you know they're actually doing that? So what we did was we asked whether they could plan for tomorrow's breakfast. And this is an experiment that was actually done by um, two of my PhD students. It was led by Caroline Raby and with much help from Dean Alexis and um, a member of my department as well, Tony Dickinson. So credit must go to the three of them as well as to me. What they what we did was to ask whether they could plan for tomorrow's breakfast. So we taught them that um, there were a suite of rooms that they could visit during the day. Like and a bird motel or something. That's right, a bird motel with a suite of three rooms. And in the evening they went to bed as, as normal and go to sleep in the dark, just as all birds do. And when they woke up in the morning they found themselves in one of two motel rooms. And on some days they found themselves in motel room one, They woke up hungry and breakfast was served, no problem. But on other days, they found themselves in Motel 2. Unlucky, they woke up hungry as usual, but there was no breakfast. I stayed in a few motels like that. (laughs) Absolutely. No names, though. And then all of a sudden, we gave them an unexpected test. Suddenly, in the evening, we gave them the opportunity to hide food as well as eat it. And lo and behold, all the birds put the vast majority of the food in the Motel 2, where breakfast wasn't served. So, in other words, they knew that they'd been hungry there in the past, and so they were relying on this past experience, this past memory, to plan for tomorrow, because they may be in Motel 2 and have no food. Exactly. So the trick of the question is that they hadn't been trained to hide food in either of these rooms. It was a totally novel, unexpected question, and they'd used their past experience about which rooms served breakfast in the morning and which didn't, to solve a potential problem. They didn't know where they'd be in the morning, so just in case, put the food in the room where breakfast is. Why do they have this trait? Because you, you can see why we might do that, because we're a bit more complex than they are, but what benefit does it serve this family of birds to have this ability? Well, it's... It's a very interesting question from a number of couple, uh, from a number of levels. My husband, Dr. Nathan Emery, and I have suggested that intelligence has evolved independently in two very different groups of animals: the apes, which obviously includes us, and members of the um, crow family. Why? Well, we've suggested that it's because actually in the wild they have similar problems to solve. They evolved at about the same time, about five million years ago, so about the same time as the apes. Um, and they're highly social. And one of the major theories, um, theory formulated by Nicholas Humphrey, is that actually the reason why we and other apes are so intelligent is because we live complex social lives. Not just being in a big group, but basically having to keep track of who does what to you and, and when and being able to sort of network and do politics. And the argument is that that's exactly the same kinds of problems that members of the Crow family solve. But they don't have people like John Prescott, though, hopefully. Well, you know, I, I don't know what the scrub day equivalent of that is. I got this um, press cutting. I, I was reading the Daily Telegraph this week and I saw this and I thought this is amazing because it's not only relevant to what we're going to talk about today, but it's also fascinating in itself. And I'll just read you this because it says, 
um, a quick smoke, it's good for the wings, is the headline. And it says, birds are picking up discarded cigarette butts and then using their smoke to fumigate the wings of parasites, experts said yesterday. Rooks have been spotted swooping onto the tracks at Exeter St David's Railway Station in Devon and then placing their wings over the smoke to collect the fumes. One commuter said, I noticed the rooks because they're not usually found in towns. They were generally flapping about when a chap flicked a cigarette butt onto the track. It was still alight and one of the rooks swooped down, picked the butt up with its beak and then flew around and landed on the platform, dancing around with a cigarette butt in its beak. Uh, it looked quite comical, but then it dropped the butt onto the platform, placed its wings over it, collecting the smoke. It seemed as though it was using it to get rid of something, such as an ant or a parasite or something. And then they've got a quote from someone at the RSPB who said it's the first time they'd heard of the phenomenon, but that perhaps they'd learned to use the cigarette smoke to kill off parasites. How very clever. I'd love to go and see them. I've not actually seen that. But, of course, rooks are renowned for doing a number of very innovative and seemingly clever things. Um, one of the most famous examples is that a couple of years ago now, they won the award for BBC's um, Cleverest Animal. And what they were doing in this case, this was rooks on one of the M4 motorway service stations. And what the birds were doing was finding a very clever, innovative way of getting food that was at the bottom of the rubbish bins on the service stations, that two birds would sit in tandem on the end, opposite ends of the rubbish bin and slowly pull up the bin liner under their feet, do it in tandem so that all the food goes to the middle bit where it's within beak's reach. And then what they would do is one bird would start tossing the food over the side while the other bird popped down onto the pavement to guard the food so it couldn't be stolen by others. And because no one's obviously ever shown them how to do that, that's obviously them working that out de novo. They've had to work that out for themselves and then teach each other. So one's had to look at what the other one's doing to work out how to do it. Well, I guess the mill and jolly question is whether each individual bird works it out de novo and it just so happens that lots of them do it, rather like the um, blue tits that um, figured out how to open milk bottle tops to take the cream, or whether they're actually learning from one another. And that's a very interesting question because that's one of the... Um, kinds of experiments that we're actually starting to do now at Cambridge University is actually look at whether the rooks will learn from one another and whether you could actually get sort of mini cultures depending on which individual bird is learning to do things in a particular way. I think one of the most fascinating things that's come out of bird research recently is that they use tools because, you know, you can associate humans with using tools, maybe chimps, you know, smacking at something with a tool, but you don't expect, you know, birds have got a beak. Why do they need to use tools? Tell, tell us a bit more about tool use in birds. Well, I, I guess one thing is, you know, why do you, why do you need to to use a tool if you've got a beak well your beak can only go in so far so just in the same way as you might have a problem with hands that if there's a small hole you can't get your hand in there it may also be that the hole is sufficiently small or deep that the food is out of beak's reach and that's when you would need a tool and there are a number of um, species that do use tools but I think the most remarkable thing is that some members of the crow family, one in particular, the New Caledonian crow, which, surprise, surprise, lives in New Caledonia, actually makes tools. So this sort of puts it on a par with the chimpanzees. They don't just use tools, they actually manufacture them, and they make different types of tools for different purposes. And just to finish off, Nikki, is, is there any clue given to us, if you look at the animal's brain, why these birds have these spectacular abilities compared with other animals that don't perform like this? Well, it's very interesting because if you look at the relative brain size, so that takes into account 
body size. After all, it stands to reason that bigger bodies have bigger everything, including bigger brains, and hence why the whales have such big brains. But if you look at it in relation to body size, then obviously we have the biggest relative brain. But if you look at the next ones down, it's, um, it's the cetaceans or the... Um, dolphins but it's also the apes within the mammals and in the birds it's two groups it's the crows and it's the parrots and if you look at where the enlargement is in the brain just as in apes the enlargement is in the neocortex well the same is true of the crows the enlargement is in the avian um cortical in the avian neocortical area so it seems to be even in the same part of the brain that is enlarged Thanks, Nikki. That's Nikki Clayton from Cambridge University who works on scrub jays and is trying to use them as, to get insights into how they plan for the future and perhaps how our brains work too. If you'd like to ask any questions about animal behaviour, phone number's coming up shortly and don't forget that in a second we'll be hearing from Tim Clutton-Brock who works on meerkats. These are viewed as the world's most sociable mammals, more sociable even than Dr Cat. And also Andrew Smith is waiting in the wings to tell us how monkeys manage to always pick the juiciest fruit. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. Now we're off to the Kalahari Desert and the study of the most cooperative mammals of all, the meerkats. They are my favourites. You've seen them on the telly, poking up, looking around. They're great. Bet but they don't take their shoes off in the studio like you keep I, doing. I've got itchy feet. But what is the and they ba- smell. <laughs> Shut up. What is the basis of meerkat society and how is it organised? Now, Chris has been catching up with Professor Tim Clutton-Brock to chat about these fascinating furry animals. I've worked on meerkats now. For, for 13 years and we've managed to tame up habituate uh, 14 different groups of meerkats so we have about 300 animals in the Kalahari which is where we, where we work and each of those groups the groups are of somewhere between 10 and, uh, and 40 animals in each group each has a separate territory of about somewhere between 5 and 10 square kilometres and we can recognise all those individuals and we have got them so tame that they'll actually climb onto electronic balances at request. So we've trained the meerkats for crumbs of hard-boiled egg to get onto the balances. But what are you ultimately hoping to find out by doing this? I think the most single question, the single focus of the study is why they're so cooperative. So the meerkats are arguably the most cooperative mammal. Perhaps it's a near-run thing between them and naked mole rats, but meerkats are very, very cooperative. One female in each group breeds, and everyone else in the group helps to rear her pups. Males and female group members, fully mature individuals, fully mature males, uh, babysit the pups, they help to get food for the pups, they guard the pups, they go on guard in turn. So the group is breeding as a unit, not unlike an insect society. How do they decide who's a dominant female? When you remove a dominant female, all the potential other females compete like fury. Uh, They fight commonly, and then one finally emerges, and she suppresses the others. She commonly evicts the main challengers over the next few months, and then she turns in and produces children over, oh, can be five to ten years. So the group gradually becomes a dominant female and the male she's mated to and her children. So how do they persuade all of their other members of their colony to rear their own, well, the children of the, of the animal that's breeding at the expense of breeding themselves? Well, that's a, a very good question. The, they stop the other females breeding 
So the presence of the dominant female actually suppresses their fertility, so the others can't breed. If they do breed, and they do occasionally, the dominant female commonly kills and sometimes eats their pups. So that's a pheromonal suppression, is it? It's probably a pheromonal suppression. It may also be partly through direct interaction because the, fe- the dominant females are aggressive towards the other females. The other way they help to suppress is that when at particular stages of the breeding cycle they throw the, older, the, uh, the oldest female subordinates out of the group. So one way of getting your daughter to help in a meerkat society is to sling her out into the outside world so she, she sees just how tough that is and then when she comes back in she's prepared to do the washing up. I know a, hu- a few uh, humans that could benefit from that strategy but quite complicated behaviour, where do they get it from? Um, I think the cooperation is associated with desert living and with dianality, with, with the fact that they're active during the daytime. And if you live in an open desert and you're active during the day, you're very, very susceptible to predators and you've got to come up with some way of combating predators. And groups defend each other against predators. They put on guards to keep an eye out. They keep a huge network of burrows as escape systems from predators. So the group is very, very important in keeping predators out. And that was Professor Tim Cluttonbrock from the University of Cambridge. Now, avoiding predators, as those cunning meerkats do, is also something we're going to be talking about with Dr Andrew Smith, who's coming up very soon. Dr Chris and Dr Cat on The Naked Scientist. We heard from Tony in Southend, and he says, do dogs understand language? You've got a dog. I have. Well, my parents have, and I think they understand walkies and dinner. And that's it. There is uh, a very famous dog which has actually been published in the journal Science, so I believe this because Science is one of the world's top science journals. And this dog is called Rico. It's a German dog. Uh, it's an Alsatian German Shepherd, appropriately enough. And it, it has got a, a registered vocabulary of 240 words. Are they all in German? And um, I believe it speaks German, this dog, yeah. But the interesting yeah. thing about this is, yeah, is that we have a lot of people who listen to us in Germany, so be very careful, Kat. We're, yeah. we're high up in the charts in German in Germany, so watch it. We won't be very soon. Um, <laughs> but no, this dog uh, is very, very fascinating because um, the owners did this experiment and they had the dog in room one, let's say, and in room two they had some of the toys that the dog knew the names for. And they demonstrated it had the learning ability of at least a five-year-old because it could use um, context-specific learning and an attribution. Now, what this means is if you say to the dog, go next door and I want you to retrieve the ball. Now, if there was a ball in the room, it would get it. But if you said, go next door and retrieve the spanner, but it had never seen a spanner, but there were three objects in there that it did know the name for and a spanner. It would correctly say, I, I know what that is, I know what that is, I know what that is, I don't know what that is, it's, I've been told to get a spanner, and therefore I will assume that the object I don't know is the spanner, and it would retrieve it. And this was proven time and time again in, in countless trials. So I think um, the answer to Tony's question is yes, um, dogs can understand words, they can have a vocabulary, and the part of the brain that probably does it is very similar to the part that we use, and it's just because we're a sort of more specialised version of their brain that we have more developed language. Because that's fascinating, because the average tabloid newspaper is aimed at a reading age of about nine, so it's only got a few years to go and it could probably read the sun. It, it could probably write the sun, I think, when I'm talking about read it. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the naked scientists. So naked scientists, Dr Chris and Dr Cat, I was just speculating as the uh, how long it'll be before the sun's editors are on the phone to us. Uh, in the studio with us also from Anglia Ruskin is Dr Andrew Smith, he works on monkeys. Hi Andrew. Hello Chris. Thanks for coming in. Um, tell us about this work on how monkeys use colour and, and why this is relevant to us. Certainly. I've been uh, researching on uh, primate colour vision 
It's uh, an interesting topic because um, primates, unlike the majority of uh, um, animals, have got uh, three-cone um, colour vision. This means they can see the, uh, the same range of colours, more or less, that we can, whereas other non-primate mammals, such as, say, dogs and cats, see the world in a reduced set of um, colours, and we weren't entirely sure why this was the case. So, just to sort of iron that one out, so a dog, people, people often say dogs see the world in black and white. It's not true. They're seeing the world in colour, but they're seeing it more probably akin to what a, a colourblind human would see. Exactly. It's If you imagine, say, a Dulux um, colour chart, um, it's just a reduced set of those colours, not being able to distinguish uh, certain um, combinations of those, rather than simply, say, seeing the world in, in black and white or another colour and white. So how was it first discovered that, that monkeys and other primates did have this ability? It wasn't just us. Um, what they were doing was looking at uh, um, colour vision capabilities by giving them more or less the same tests um, that they give um, humans, basically asking them to discriminate um, between different um, coloured shapes. And if they could tell the difference between the colours, then they can tell, obviously, those colours are separate and distinct colours. Oh, right, so it's set up so that yeah. you, there's no way that they could just be doing it by using two colours. They had to have three colour vision to do that. Yeah. So what's your view that is the reason why they've got that ability? I think the... Uh, main uh, um, reason is probably due to uh, um, foraging abilities, so being able to detect um, fruits against the background of leaves. Leaves are invariably um, green. Many fruits, when they're ripe, which is when plants want uh, um, animals to eat them, and also when they're going to contain the most amount of sugars and nutrients, are often orange, yellow or, or reddish. So it's the ability to distinguish ripe fruits from uh, a background of leaves, which obviously, if you're going to be um, a human colour blind, has very um, distinct problems telling the difference between red and green. If you can't tell the difference between red and green, it's going to be very difficult for you to pick out red fruits against a, a green background. So evolving good three-cone or trichromatic colour vision is going to enable primates to uh, choose their ripe fruits against a, a green background of leaves. Is that what we have to thank for the fact that we have such good colour vision? Uh, we think so. That's probably the uh, the leading theory. Although there are alternatives that uh, maybe um, have evolved to uh, enable you to pick out very young leaves because young leaves are much more nutritious. They've got less um, noxious secondary um, compounds in them than uh, um, old leaves. So for folivorous leaf-eating monkeys such as um, howler monkeys or gorillas um, and maybe our um, human ancestors, the ability to... Uh, um, pick out the, the newest, youngest, tenderest leaves may have uh, been a selective advantage for the evolution of three-cone colour vision. But you'd have thought that other animals that, that actually spend their entire life eating leaves because we're not herbivorous, are we? I mean, we're omnivorous, so we eat some meat. But some animals that are very dependent on eating plants all the time just to survive, that would be even more important to them, wouldn't it? So why don't cows and sheep and goats and things have that ability? It's possible that uh, uh, cows and sheep simply haven't had the uh, um, chance mutation to develop um, three-cone colour vision. Also, obviously, being much larger animals, they've got to graze and consume much larger um, quantities. Also, it really depends on the type of leaf um, that you're talking about. Um, the leaves in terms of primate colour vision are from tropical forests where um, predation pressure on the leaves is quite um, high and interestingly they do flush through a kind of pinkish red when um, they're new leaves whereas grasses, new leaves are simply um, invariably 
the same or very similar green to uh, um, the uh, um, adult leaves, if you like. Is it just fruit that they use this enhanced colour uh, appreciation for, or could there be other spin-offs? Uh, there could be other spin-offs. It may help uh, um, to detect um, predators. If you think about the, uh, the coats of many of the... Uh, um, cats in uh, rainforests such as uh, ocelots, margays, jaguars, or indeed um, leopards, the yellowish hues in, uh, in their coats may be more easily distinguished um, if you've got good three-cone um, colour vision. Another thing that's, that's really important, as well as being able to spot predators, is to actually find somewhere safe to, to sleep when you're trying to avoid predators. I mean, how, how do monkeys cope with that when they're living in the wild? OK, it certainly seems for the uh, um, small monkeys, the, the tamarins from uh, um, the Amazon that I've been looking at, that uh, predation is probably one of the most important aspects of uh, um, their ecology. So what they do is they try to um, find the, uh, the most secure um, sites. Um, these are usually fairly high up in, uh, in trees, often um, hidden by dense tangles of vegetation and, uh, um, and lianas. And also the monkeys really uh, use the, uh, the sites very, very infrequently. They change um, their sleeping site almost every um, night. And the longest I've ever um, known them sleep in the same uh, um, site for is uh, three consecutive um, nights. This is probably to uh, stop any predators in the area um, building up a, a search image and maybe smelling... Um, a distinct monkey scent from a particular um, tree that they've been sleeping in a lot. So by changing their uh, um, sleeping sites very frequently, they're uh, hoping to, uh, to avoid predators. I know a few humans like that. Maybe that's why they're up to it. Thank you very much, Andrew Smith from Anglia Ruskin. Now, last week we asked you if you could help out with our question of the week. We wanted to know what would happen if you dropped a stone down a hole uh, that went all the way through the earth. We had some really good answers, actually, including Ben, who rose in from Canada, Duff Howells in California, Negin in London, all gave fantastic answers. They were spot on. And uh, in the meantime, though, we got Sabina to find out the answer for us. Hello and welcome to the first ever question of the week, where I take one of your tricky questions and find an expert to answer it. Brian from Norwich started the ball rolling last week. The question has been bugging me for quite a number of years. It is to do with gravity, actually. If I'm standing in Australia and I drop a stone and it hits the ground, if I stand in England and I do the same thing, the stone drops to the ground. Now, if it was possible to drill a hole straight through the earth from one side to the other, would those two stones meet in the middle and then float? Hmm. Well, I'm pretty curious to know what would happen if I jumped into a hole going through the earth. Would I get stuck in the middle? Would I fall out at the other end? We've already heard from Fred and Scott. Here's what they thought. Think about just one stone. It would accelerate under gravity until the gravitational force equals the frictional force due to air. It would then fall at constant velocity, gradually slowing as it approached the centre, as the gravitational field reduced and the air pressure and thus air friction increased. Its inertia will make it go past the centre, at which point it would be moving against gravity. This would result in it slowing down and then accelerating back towards the centre again. It would repeat this cycle several times, losing energy to friction until it came to rest in the centre. Are they right? Time to call in the experts. This week I spoke to physics teacher Andrew Liner from Brighton. Okay, well, let's assume, for a start, the hole is empty and let's ignore the very high temperatures and pressures that you would get down there. We're talking 5,000 degrees and 5 million times atmospheric pressure. So that's a practical detail. Anyway, we start to fall down the hole. 
Now, we're accelerators to start with under normal gravity. Now, Newton tells us that only the bits of the Earth that are nearer to the center than we are would have any effect on us. The bits near the surface, sort of outside, the layers outside, they have no net effect, they cancel out. So the force on us is like proportional to our distance from the center. So when you're halfway down, you'd weigh half as much. So you're still being pulled towards the center, but less and less and less, but you're accelerating all the time. By the time you hit the center, you're going really fast, and you carry on going, and you get right to the other side. You'll be traveling at, well, something like uh, 24,000 miles an hour very fast and that's enough to carry you right up to the other side again and then when you're up there same thing applies you'll be pulled down to the middle and end up back where you started this is what we call simple harmonic motion actually just like pendulums and a weight on a spring it'll go on ad infinitum in fact and the time it takes is quite easy to calculate it takes actually about 90 minutes from start to finish to get back where you started, which happens to be the same as the time it takes for a satellite in the lowest Earth orbit to go right round once. Bet you didn't know that, did you? Thanks to Andrew Liner for answering that one. Next week, we'll be trying to help Jen. My name's Jen, and I come from Cambridge, and I'd like to know, is it true that you only use 10% of your brain at any given time? So what do you think? Are most people out there using only 10% of their brain at any time? Write into question of the week at thenakedscientist.com to let me know. Next week, we'll bring you the best answers we've received and get a brain expert to tell us the correct answer. We'll see if the expert needs to use more than 10% of their brain to explain it. But now, back to the studio. Thank you, Sabina. So if you've got a science question that needs some expert attention, email it to us, question of the week at thenakedscientist.com. And of course, if uh, you want to speculate as to wh- whether you really only use 10% of your brain at any given time, let us know about the answer to that. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Tis the Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Katz and we have been talking this week about animal behaviour and we thought a very appropriate question would be how fast or what's the fastest that information can travel along the human nervous system and we've had quite a good response to this haven't we Kat? We have, we've had loads of people. Um, Tony and Westcliff said it goes at the speed of light. That's a wee bit quick. Um, 180 miles an hour from Jim Hyson in Caldicott and um, the, the winner actually, I don't know how we're going to post this, um, but the winner I've picked out is Ralph Leftwich, who I just noticed is in Portland in Oregon. So uh, he, I think, has won. Now, shall I tell you the answer to it? Yes, okay. go on, tell us. This how fast how it does works. it go? So scientists have found that the speed of a nerve impulse in metres per second is given by the diameter of the nerve times six. So the biggest human nerves are 20 microns across. So the fastest speed they could go at would be 120 metres per second, which is a whopping 268 miles per hour. Now, that's basically what Ralph says. So um, Ralph has won. We have an American winner today. So well done. I don't know how we're going to pay the postage to send it back to America. <laughs> well, we had uh, someone who won. Chris, Christoph uh, from Poland won last week. So uh, thank you very much for phoning in. Now, Andy reckons he knows the answer to our kitchen science. Hi, Andy. Hello, Mike. What do you think's going on with kitchen science where we ask people to take a jar with some rice and shuck a knife in it? What actually happens? Um, at the 
wobbling, it'll help the rice settle into an ordered pattern within the jar. Yep. That's the reason he's able to keep adding more rice. Yep. The three adds to it, and the more it settles, yep. the more difficult the knife will be to withdraw and place in again. So you reckon the knife will get stuck? Eventually, in theory, yeah. Okay, let's uh, just down the line. Let's go back to Kegs in Chelmsford, and we'll join Ben and Dave, and we'll see if you're right. Ben, has he got it right? Welcome back to Kegs in Chelmsford. I'm still here with Devik and Stephen. Hi. Hi. And we have a jam jar full to the brim with rice here. We put a big sharp knife in it. We've been shaking it back and forth for quite some time and keep topping it up so it's still absolutely full. And now we're going to see what's a bit unusual about this. So, Dave? Okay, so what we're going to do is I want you to take the knife out gently, turn it round maybe by 90 degrees, and then push it in gently all the way to the bottom. Is that easy to do? That's actually quite hard to do. All the way to the bottom, really push. Really push. Okay. Now what I want you to do is just let, let go of the jar and just gently pick it up by the knife. The rice has actually lifted the jar. It looks like a jam jar sticking off the end of a knife. Would you expect yeah. that to happen? Um, no, you wouldn't, but because it's, it's kind of like a knife and the rice is all loose, so how can it pick a jar up? So, Dave, he's got a very good point. A knife is a nice, big, thin shape going through lots of little granules. That shouldn't grip on, surely? The reason why you can pull a knife into and out of rice very easily normally is that there's lots of gaps in between the rice grains. So when you put the knife in, the rice grains can move out of the way very easily. There's no forces involved, so it'll just slide in and out gently. So the rice grains almost act like, like a fluid, like water. So they, they move out of the way easily. You can easily push a knife in and out. Yeah, exactly. Now, when you shake it for all that time, um, the rice grains are slowly falling into all the gaps between the other rice grains till eventually there's nowhere for them to move to. So when you push the knife in, the rice grains just squash into each other and jam into each other. So now, after all the shaking, the rice is acting like a solid that you can push a knife actually into rather than just through. Yeah, because although there's nothing sticking the rice grains together, there's nowhere for them to move. They just push into each other and friction holds them together and they act like a solid. Fantastic. Well, hopefully you will have found that at home and you'll be waving a jam jar full of rice around now. I hope you enjoy it for your dinner. But that's all for Kitchen Science this week from Kegs and Chelmsford. And of course, it's goodbye from Dave Ansell. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from the boys. Goodbye. goodbye. Well, thank you very much, Ben. So there you go. You can pick up a whole jar of rice just using a knife and uh, if you allow it to pack down nicely first. For more exciting experiments like that, that anyone can try at home quite safely, there's loads of them on our website. You just have to go to nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. So well done, Andy. Very good. Thank you. Well done. Great to have you on the programme. I'm glad your answer was a little bit better than your phone line. Uh, Tony's in Westcliff. Hi, Tony. Good evening. Got a quick question for us. What would you like to know? Well, you virtually answered it. Um, I, it was Tony from Westcliff, and, you, and uh, it was about dogs understanding language. Okay, but it, I thought, I thought I've got here, it. it says, we're all from different countries, such as Africa and China, and we're travelling all over the world and interbreeding between races, and will we all eventually look the same, is what it says here. Oh, sorry, that was a no, yes, they've got me the wrong question. Right, yes. What is, sorry, forget that. Thank you for answering it, by the way. Anyway, okay. uh, yeah, we, we all started from Africa. We went to places. There was very little. Um, you couldn't get from one place to another, could you, in the past? I mean, I'm going back thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. So once you got to China, you were there. That's right. So we, they then developed features slightly different. We're all human beings, but you can tell a Chinaman from, say, an African, can't you? Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, my question is, 
do you think in probably take another million years, but when we all now we can all travel all over the world, we all mix together. Will the human race eventually all look the same? I would say there's a very good chance in a long, 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 long time that we could do. Um, the reason that we all look different is because of sort of genetic segregation, is what it's called. Mm. You're right. People weren't very mobile in history, and they adapted to suit their environment. And uh, people in Africa are usually subject to a lot more sun, for example, a lot more ultraviolet, and therefore they developed heavily melanized brown skins to combat the ultraviolet. As they moved away, north and south, from Africa, but mostly north because that's the direction the landmass took them. Roughly about, well, in the last million years or so, early early humans went. The modern humans I cast in the last 60,000 years probably. Uh, as they moved north, of course, we were exposed to less ultraviolet radiation. It became very energetically costly to put all that energy into making our skins brown when we didn't really need it. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter if people made their skins a little bit whiter. And so as a result, uh, local populations became paler and that's when we got segregated the way we did. Now with the mobile populations we've got today, there's every chance we might see ourselves turning back into um, a sort of more homogeneous mix again. But we've got to leave it there, Tony, because we're going to run out yeah, of time. Nice time. I'll find you again next week, something else. Oh, wonderful. Uh, Thanks, Tony. Uh, oh, I'd like to. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right, well, that's pretty much it on this week's edition of The Naked Scientist. Uh, there's one very quick one here, Kat, if you can manage this in record time. It's from Chris, who's in Poland, he's in Rockwoff, and he says, I've always wondered how it is that you can freeze sperm and they're still alive when you defreeze them. Um, shouldn't the water in the cells expand and damage them? OK, you can freeze all sorts of things. You can freeze sperm, you can actually freeze embryos, human embryos. This is how some of the IVF processes work. And what you do is you don't just freeze them in water, you mix them with um, something. Uh, and certainly when I was freezing cells in the lab, we used a chemical called dimethyl sulfoxide which uh, just mixes in the cells and it alters the freezing um, properties of the water in the cells. So like a natural antifreeze, burst. isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty much, you put an antifreeze in with them, it affects the water, they don't make crystals and the cells don't explode. So that's how you do it. Thanks, Kat. Well, that is it for this week. And uh, it just remains for me to say a very big thank you to everyone at home for listening to us. Thank you. We really appreciate you giving up your time to listen to The Naked Scientist. Also to our guests this week, thank you to Andrew Smith from Anglia Ruskin and Nikki Clayton from Cambridge University and to the amazing production team we have here, uh, Will Nichols, Ben Valsler, Sabina Miknovich, Azzy Kateri and, of course, Dr Kat for helping to present this week's programme. Next time, it's our Q&A show, questions and answers. So we need your science questions, basically. If you could just email them to me this week anything on anything chris at the naked scientists.com is the email address or you can go to our website it's uh, naked scientists.com there's a feedback form on there which you can just use to bang in any emails any questions you like or if you just like to say hello we really love hearing from you and don't forget we've also got our forum at naked scientists.com forward slash forum which is a thriving hubbub of scientific chit-chat. There are lots of people from all over the world asking and answering science questions. So if that's your bag and you want to find out how many pieces of toast you can make with the energy in a lightning bolt, that's the place to look, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. I look forward to seeing you online. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent 
to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.